0: Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawassasi, and I am your host for the FACT Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am FACT's vice president of community relations. When a patient with a food allergy or related conditions seeks medical attention, their insurance company will often require prior authorization for medications, testing, or treatments from the insurance company. Even if their doctor has indicated these are medically necessary items, this process may hinder important treatment and management. Current President of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and Board Certified Allergist Dr. Jonathan Bernstein will explore prior authorization barriers facing caregivers and patients today. Before we start today, I just want to give a heartfelt thank you to Genentech for sponsoring the Fact Roundtable podcast. Please note that today's guest was not sponsored by Genentech or compensated in any way by the sponsor to participate in this specific podcast. Welcome, Dr. Bernstein, to Facts Roundtable podcast. We're absolutely delighted and honored to have you on the podcast today to discuss prior authorization barriers. This is a hot topic. This is an interesting topic. And we're just absolutely pleased that you're here with us today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: You are so welcome. So before we dive into this really exciting and really vital and important topic, can you just share with listeners a little bit of your background? You have such a fascinating and unique history and drive and passion. I just think everyone needs to hear about this. So please go ahead.
1: Well, I've been practicing allergy since 1990. I grew up in a family of allergists. My father was an allergist. My brother became an allergist. And, you know, I became an allergist. It wasn't that I was told I had to do that. It was probably environmental. There were some environmental determinants that influenced me. When I think back on it, I had a lot of jobs in laboratories and medical facilities, and I just had a lot of exposure. But I really wanted to make sure that was the right specialty, so I tried a lot of other things. But I fortunately fell into allergy and immunology, which has been a fantastic experience uh, because we do so much. In terms of helping so many types of patients, uh, the types of medical conditions we treat are truly you know we're, we're truly a primary care subspecialty because we have tentacles in a lot of directions. So that's my background. I've been at the University of Cincinnati since 1990. Currently, I'm a professor of clinical medicine there and a partner of Bernstein Allergy Group and Bernstein Clinical Research Center. And I'm proud to say that we now have a third-generation allergist. My son, Joshua, is finishing up his fellowship at National Jewish and will be coming back, hopefully, to Cincinnati to start as an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati allergy and immunology.
0: I love that. It is all in the family. And you're right. There probably was this wonderful early exposure, but I just love that the passion is in your blood. And I just wanted everyone to hear that. So now let's actually dive right into our topic. Can you give listeners just a basic explanation of what prior authorization with the insurance company entails, not only from the medical side, but the patient side, you know, I know from my own personal experience, my doctor's trying on their end. I'm trying on my end. There's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. If you don't mind explaining what the that process is and then the barriers and, and why uh, the barriers is such a problem.
1: Well, well, originally, uh, prior authorization was developed trying to curtail unnecessary costs in the hospital setting, and then it subsequently expanded to include outpatient practices trying to control or limit inappropriate healthcare care in general, whether it was prescriptions or hospitalizations or procedures. So that was the original intent, but it subsequently became a mechanism for insurance companies to really manage healthcare by making arbitrary decisions about what medications can be used in which patients when. These healthcare companies have certain policy manuals that oftentimes cite guidelines or what they consider the uh, standard of care for management, but it becomes very difficult for the patient and the physician when we're trying to manage a specific problem and we're trying to find something as simple as an inhaled corticosteroid to treat their asthma it's not approved. It's, it costs several hundred dollars for the patient to get this. And uh, what's frustrating is that if we don't manage these people's conditions appropriately, they will end up in the emergency room, they'll end up in the hospital, and the cost will even be more substantial, not to mention the associated morbidity and potential, in some cases, mortality that patients can face for access to the proper medications or healthcare needs.
0: Now, can you give us an example of? when someone might experience a problem with that prior authorization? And then what happens during that delay?
1: Well, there are examples, and I would say probably the biggest examples are biologics for the treatment of asthma or atopic dermatitis or eosinophilic esophagitis or nasal polyp. There's a number of biologics approved for a lot of the conditions that we treat. And prior to getting these approved, we have to go through uh, the uh, carrier to show that the patient has the proper criteria that are necessary to prescribe this, which is fine. But then many times they'll deny it, or they'll say this has to go through a peer-to-peer. And this becomes very burdensome for our staff, for people who are trying to get these prior authorizations completed. And it also delays necessary care in these patients who, in many cases, especially with conditions like asthma, have potentially severe persistent disease that is uh, subject to recurrent exacerbations and hospitalization. So this is an example. Another example, our Uh, atopic dermatitis cases. We have severe, moderate to severe cases where people have severe eczema covering over 50% of their body, and there are biologics. But there's also oral therapies now that can be used to treat these conditions, and they are not covered by most insurance carriers requiring prior auth. And this tends to be a very long, drawn-out process, and many times ends up as a peer-to-peer review where you have to talk The case, discuss the case with someone who is uh, of your specialty or comparable to your uh, expertise about the needs for this treatment. And, you know, I personally have not had difficulty getting these medications approved for my patients in Cincinnati, Ohio. But if you read the experiences of many clinicians in different states around the country, it's quite different. And there's, I think, especially in larger states or in more in states where there's more managed health care and uh, more restrictions, it can be quite problematic.
0: Now, I've heard from some fellow patients, or actually say parents and and caregivers, that their child was receiving treatment and certain medications, and then when they went to renew a prescription, they were denied. So was this a common barrier, or is that just some oddity?
1: No, it's uh, a common problem where we have to go through this prior authorization each time. Uh, There are certain states that have for instance, the gold card, that if you establish certain expertise and certain abilities that you can bypass this recurrence of prior authorizations, but that's rare and not not very commonly practiced in most states. And for instance, with hereditary angioedema, which is a rare condition where people swell spontaneously in response to trauma or stress or different triggers, they need these medications to prevent these debilitating abdominal or throat swelling episodes, but oftentimes can't get them because the managed care companies or the insurance companies won't either cover them or they require these recurrent prior authorizations. So it's very time-consuming. It's very uh, problematic to these patients who are uh, having potentially life-threatening attacks where they could have throat swelling and have asphyxiation and die. So Similarly, with immunodeficiency, trying to get IVIG or subcutaneous immunoglobulin approved, this can be very difficult. And then, even once it's approved, it has to be reassessed and reapproved every six months or so. And these are people who have defined B cell abnormalities, have low, you know, immunoglobulin levels, are susceptible to reach severe recurrent infections, and if they go without this medication for prolonged periods of time, they'll. Be immunocompromised and potentially could get a severe infection and have serious consequences as a result.
0: That's terrifying. I just have to be honest here. That is very scary as a parent and I'm sure for the patient. So, now do you have any tips or suggestions for what a patient can do and how the patient can actually work? with their doctor. So on your side, I'm assuming your staff and you as a physician are trying to get these medications covered, but is there anything that the patient can be doing that would be helpful?
1: Well, again, it does involve patient involvement because once they're notified that medication is not covered, they need to contact their physician's office and find what recourse they have to get it approved. And unfortunately, it's not all physician's offices want to deal with this and or deal with it in a timely fashion. And largely, it becomes really a nursing responsibility. The nurses are the ones who are doing, at least in our office, all of the prior authorization work. So you can imagine if you're running a full office and then you have to do, you know, 15 or 20 of these prior authorizations a day, it could be very difficult and to just get the scope of work done that you need to do just to take care of patients in general. So so I think the patients should need to be patient, number one, and then recognize that if these are time-consuming processes. They should be proactive and find out, you know, if this is something that's going to happen to start the process before, they run out of medication, not the last day, uh, and there needs to be good communication channels between their physician, the patient, and, the, of course, the staff that's overseeing these prior authorizations. That's, that's all we can do from our end. From an advocacy, from a patient advocacy perspective, they can work with organizations that are supportive of their medical problems to try to uh, advocate in Washington, D.C., to try to support bills like the prior authorization bill, which was uh, not moved forward this last Congress, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully, can still have some legs, and we can get some prior authorization reform going in Washington D.C. But I think that's important. They can be proactive. A lot of these uh, mechanisms, prior authorization, are designed to frustrate patients and physicians or healthcare providers to stop, just not prescribe it, or just to give up, and that's not good. And because many of these therapies are making a significant impact on the clinical outcomes of these patients that really uh, will help reduce their overall morbidity and allow them to have more productive lives and better quality of life.
0: That's a really good point about being involved in advocacy and helping making change. I'll make sure for our listeners that in the show notes, I'll put some links on how you can get involved with advocacy. I'm a chronic advocate myself, so I am always looking for these kind of opportunities, but this is really important. I mean, we need our legislators to support us on this. I mean, just speaking from personal experience, my insurance didn't cover my children's epinephrine auto injectors until they got to college. And so I was constantly calling the insurance companies. And just like Dr. Bernstein was just talking about, it's a time consuming process that eventually people give up because you might not have the time to call if you're working, you know, two jobs, or even just one, one job and taking care of your family. It's very difficult. So it's a really tough spot to be in.
1: Yeah. And I, it's a very important point because I was talking about uh, examples were drugs that cost two thousand, three thousand, seven, eight thousand dollars an injection. But an epinephrine injector might cost seven, several hundred dollars at uh, one time for a year, couple years, two to three years that it will last. But that's a significant economic burden for many families that they don't have that kind of out-of-pocket cash to pay out for something like this. So they really do depend on their health insurance that they pay for on a monthly basis to help defray some of these costs. We see a lot of uh, these issues also in our Medicaid populations and our Medicare populations, where many of the therapies are not covered by these uh, healthcare agencies. These are underserved, vulnerable populations that require special attention.
0: And just to pop in with a side note, one group I always like to turn to is needymeds.org. And it's just spelled needymeds.org. And I'll put them in the show notes. And it's an organization that you can call and find coupons and rebates. And you can find advocates and support. And that's just always a good resource. I just want to make sure I added that in there quickly. I agree. And there is something
1: called GoodRx. And that does also give discounts. I think that you make a very good point. You have to be your own advocate. And you have to be a good shopper. Not one size fits all. The prices for medications and pharmacies will vary between pharmacies. It's not that they all have the same drug and the same low price it does vary. And I think the consumer needs to be aware of that. Go online; you you can shop around. But uh, and then many of the new medicines that we have, at least for rhinitis and for other conditions, are now over the counter. You need to be aware that the over the counter medicines they might be cheaper, but it may be cheaper to get them through your insurance. And the other thing over the counter, they may have the nose spray says that it's only $8, but it only covers enough medicine for a week. Uh, so it's really about $32 So if you buy four of them. So you have to look at the number of inhalations, the number of puffs, to make sure that you're getting enough for the four, 30 days that you need it for.
0: So now turning to the food allergy <laughs> community and, and other related conditions as well, do you see any specific barriers? In regards to like epinephrine or testing, you know, there's component testing now. And so do you see things like this coming up in your practice?
1: Well, again, we do use component testing for specific foods, mostly for peanut. There are component testing available for other food groups, but the relevance of these tests, as of yet, are not completely clear and might still be more research-based than clinical-based, except for peanut, I would say maybe milk. I haven't had a hard time getting these approved by insurance. I don't order a lot of them, but I do order them when it's appropriate. In terms of epinephrine injectors, I think there are stories where patients can't get it. I think there's now more competition and there's more vendors. So the prices are more competitive. When there was only one vendor several years back, it was horrible. They raised the prices up to several thousand, a couple thousand dollars. It was was outrageous. And that, obviously, I think that CEO got reprimanded, uh, as I recall. But it's important that we have, we provide patients with options. That's how, in our society, we can keep costs reduced because there's competition. There are options for rebates. And again, some of those are still ongoing. Some of them may have been discontinued. But I haven't had a great difficulty getting epinephrine approved, at least in our area. But this could vary geographically, like you're in California, much different out there. There's a lot more people. There's, again, they've had a lot of, you know, economic issues in that state. Even though they have the fifth highest gross national product in the world, they're a bankrupt state to some extent. (laughs) So it doesn't make sense, but... uh, the uh, I, I would say that, and for foods, the only food commercial food product we have available is Palforzia, which is used to help provide patients with incidental exposure protection. It's not meant to be used for sustained unresponsiveness, but to just provide patients with protection if they have incidental exposure. haven't had too much trouble, but these do require prior authorizations and do fall into that category because they are more costly. The bottom line is, it's not like you prescribe it and the patients will get it. It requires some intermediary work. I, I don't mind being the patient's advocate, but I think that insurance companies also have to respect the fact that these are very costly things for offices, especially for institutions, for universities, for private practices. If you're using one full time equivalent employee to do all these prior authorizations no one's getting paid for that it hurts the overall the practices because if you're not generating revenue you can't keep your doors open you know you're trying to help support the economy by running this is a small business essentially. Even a university that runs these has to look at their costs to have an FTE doing something, doing one thing or another. So these are real health economic issues. In terms of food, I think you mentioned, uh, well, those are the three things I think you mentioned. As you know, there's a lot of practices in the United States that are doing oral immunotherapy for foods. These are not FDA approved, but these are protocols that have been developed to provide safe exposure. You know, you can start off with very tiny amounts and then build up over time, typically over a six-month period where patients can actually be receiving one or two grams of protein to that food. And actually, uh, if they come in contact with it or even if they eat it freely, they typically don't have major issues. Limitations of this practice is that most of the time the children don't like the taste of the foods. And so they are reticent to take to eat these foods, whether it's a peanut or a tree nut on a regular basis the rest of their life. Uh, So it is a treatment that is effective. We still don't know what the threshold Doses for for developing sustained unresponsiveness. If if patients stopped eating these foods, how long would it take, or would they, re, you know, have a reaction if they ate the food after a certain period of time? We know that probably only about twenty five percent of patients after stopping foods probably have sustained unresponsiveness. So it's not a long lasting immunity. So I think what you know, this is a good stopgap, and it does work. Well, in children, it helps parents have to deal with these these difficult situations. Parents obviously are very fearful that when they're not around, uh, especially when they go off to college that their children will you know be susceptible to a severe reaction and Of course, no parent wants to see anything bad happen to their child or to their loved ones so this uh, these are things that typically can be treated effectively but you know, not all kids will go through the process or will agree to go through the process. And and there may be bumps along the way. There may be uh, some, there is a small risk of developing complications like eosinophilic esophagitis when you do oral immunotherapy, especially with milk products. We've had very good experience with this in our practice with peanut and tree nuts and egg and and even milk and other foods like sesame and soy. Sesame becoming a very important Allergen. Uh, I think it's now rated the world's seventh most common allergen. So, so I think that it's it, it has been a good breakthrough. We need more research. We need more understanding of what's happening immunologically during this process. But it's a very similar process, likely with what's happening with oral immunotherapy to air allergens, because uh, we do have sublingual immunotherapy that's approved by the FDA for grass, ragweed, and dust mite in this country, and that's been shown to be very effective in inducing uh, tolerance and uh, and reducing symptoms and improving clinical outcomes in for, in patients treated with those therapies. So. So we are moving forward. There's more work to be done, but it has made a big difference in many uh, patients' lives to have this available.
0: I have to say it's quite exciting. My son's 24 and he developed his food allergies at two. And it's amazing to me all that has transpired and where we're heading. And it's just amazing. Amazing. So I do have one more question for you regarding the prior authorization. So you mentioned OIT and treatment. So before a patient engages in that treatment, would you suggest they contact their insurance company right off the bat and just start discussing the treatment and what's going to be needed? Or is that something the medical practice does or we do it together?
1: It's very difficult because there is no acceptable ICT code for this at this present time, whether it's a challenge, how it's built. And some practices around the country just charge cash for the, their patients and they don't take insurance. Others do a an office visit or something of that nature. So it is variable. So that's a, that's a, a big issue. I think it's important the patient talks about this with the practice and finds out what the cost will be to them and how they can address that. I, again, it'll determine if it's out of, the, out of pocket versus something they can be run through their insurance and depending on how it's billed. But and this is another area that needs to be looked at and then we need to have uh, specific ICD codes for billing for oral immunotherapy.
0: Thank you so much. Well, our time together has come to an end. So before we part ways, do you have any words of wisdom or advice you'd like to share or something you just want to make sure our listeners hear from you today?
1: I just would like people to know that allergy and immunology is a very complex specialty. It's not just a specialty. It does skin testing and provides allergen injections. We deal with a lot of health issues. We talked about many of those today. We deal with inflammatory skin disorders. We deal with asthma. We deal with rhinitis. We deal with food and drug allergy. We deal with mast cell disorders, anaphylaxis, unexplained allergic reactions, idiopathic anaphylaxis, eosinophilic disorders. So there's just a lot of things that we deal with. And I think patients need to understand that when they are looking for care to uh, seek out the right specialists to make sure that they're getting the optimal benefit of treatment.
0: Excellent point. And before we say goodbye, congratulations. You are the new president now of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, known as Quad AI to our listeners. But congratulations on this appointment. I think exciting things are ahead. And I just want to say thank you for the good work you do in the community and all the change that you bring to everybody. And thank you again for your time today.
1: I appreciate your uh, best wishes for my uh, year as president of the Academy. And I just want to let our viewers know what my presidential initiative is, which is really to develop a service branch for the American Academy of Allergy, where we can address environmental disparities and underserved populations through volunteerism. So in the next six months to a year, we will be unro- uh, rolling out our plan and how we will be doing this. We hope that this will be uh, something that will be geographically well distributed throughout the United States, that we will engage our members to really uh, provide volunteer proposals that could make an impact in their community by leveraging their allergy and immunology experiences. So we really want to channel their their energies and their specialty towards the community to really make an impact. So I hope that we are uh, successful in this venture, and I uh, look forward to uh, trying to facilitate it and make the uh, community we live in a better place to live.
0: That is fantastic. And thank you so much for adding that in. And we will be here to support you. So as you move through this endeavor, let us know how we can help you. If you need assistance from the patient community as well, you just let us know and we will do all that we can to support you. So once again, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Before we sign off today, I just want to take one more moment to say thank you to Genentech for sponsoring Facts Roundtable podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.